Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, as we head into the week two of the more strict measures introduced by the government in a bid to try to stop the spread of COVID-19, we try to assess, are they working and how is our health system coping? Dr Nick Flynn of mycorkgp.ie joins me. Good morning to you, Nick. Good morning, Patricia. And, and you are welcome. Uh, do you believe the current lockdown is working or could the government go even further? Um, I think, that, to be honest, I don't think anybody can say for sure. I think it certainly is having an effect. Um, could they go further? Yes, they could. Um, I think we've all seen, um, again, uh, images over the weekend uh, on social media where um, the the restrict the socially restrictive movements uh, and, and actions of people haven't been <clears throat> as uh, restrictive as the uh, guidelines set out, and I think that that needs that needs to change because, like every unnecessary uh, contact we have with other people is an unnecessary risk of spreading the virus, and they're telling us that this week is an important week. The reason that they're telling us that is that they they project and they can't be sure, but they project that our surge is coming in mid-April, two weeks' time, and so everything we do now protects the hospitals for two weeks' time. So again, very disappointing over the weekend to see images of estate parties and street parties uh, uh, circulating. Um, we've got good buy-in from most people, but we need more buy-in from more people and we need we need to guarantee with powers of enforcement, uh, really and truly. Do we need to start fining people? I can see we've got calls from people saying it's the only way to do it. Margaret and Mala says the next measure the government need to bring, bring in is start fining people. Um, it's the one way. It was shocking to see people going out in gangs. A fine might wake people up. Yeah, there certainly has to be some form of of, of sanction or some form of, of punishment, really, unfortunately, for people who are not playing the game and people who aren't on board with, with, the, with the advice. Um, now, I'm not suggesting this, but the, the Philippine uh, Prime Minister at the weekend apparently issued a threat that people would be shot. Of course, we're not going to do that. But, 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 but I think we do need to certainly uh, introduce some form of punishment. And if that's if whatever... The, 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 the Gardaí or the Minister for Justice uh, from their experience of dealing with people whatever works if that's fining if that's threat of imprisonment if whatever that is uh, it, it needs it needs to happen They had to do it initially I mean 100,000 people ended up getting fined 1,000 euro each but it finally sunk into people if we're caught out on the streets we're going yeah. to get fined so yeah, yeah. Absolutely no, absolutely. There, 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 there does need to be a, a punishment because we're, we're not going to um, we're not going to get on top of this until unnecessary uh, uh, social and physical interactions are minimised, you know, and absolutely minimised. And unfortunately, street parties and estate parties are not minimising that. And they are, that is reckless behaviour, really. What do you make of the story that's in all of the papers today about setting up these, the new coronavirus assessment hubs, which will be run by GPs? Yeah, so the, the, the coronavirus assessment hubs are um, what they're called in other countries. They've been called fever clinics, but 
principally they are for patients who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 or, or who are strongly suspected as having uh, COVID-19 and there are uh, I suppose these hubs are, are where, where these patients can be assessed if they're becoming clinically unwell. Now as we know for 80% of people COVID-19 is a mild illness but for the other 20% uh, it's a more significant illness and for 6% it's a critical illness so it's really for that 20% of patients who uh, when we're uh, dealing with their symptoms over the phone that we know from their level of cough, their level of shortness of breath, their level of distress, that really they may need hospital care, but we're not sure. If they absolutely need hospital care from that assessment, they can be referred directly. But the COVID uh, assessment hubs will give us the opportunity for a more objective assessment and the doctors and nurses and all the staff there well, I understand being full protective equipment and uh, the, I think the, the patients will be seen, uh, there'll be two doctors in each hub, there'll be three appointments per doctor, I think, per hour, so six per hour with the capacity being seen. So it, it's not going to be a huge capacity, but still it, w- it will be helpful. It will be helpful, number one, in providing an objective assessment or taking, I suppose, examination findings from a patient to decide do they actually need to go to hospital and also because general practice doesn't have the same level of personal protective equipment as they will have in the hubs in, uh, in I suppose, in diverting patients who are strongly suspected or who indeed have COVID-19 and who are likely to be very infectious away from the general practice setting. And it won't mean that everyone that would go into the hub would have to be hospitalised. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. And actually, I would I would reassure people that the, that that from an assessment point of view, like the, the actual goal will be to. I mean, I suppose it'll be a little bit of a gatekeeping role. Obviously, everybody who needs to go to hospital will go to hospital from from an assessment hub. But I I I, I suspect myself that one of the um, one of the metrics for success of the hubs will be that if they can safely identify people who can safely be looked after in the community that that care will will, will remain in the community I think that, 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 that the doctors working the hubs would regard that as an important part of their task. Having said that I do think people need to prepare themselves when they are going to, for an appointment in one of the hubs that, that they will be potentially going to hospital afterwards and they knew, do need to you know, be ready for, for that. Be, yeah. ready, be ready for that and all it entails because you, there are no visitors in the hospital at the moment so you'll be saying goodbye to loved ones before you go to the hub in, in the event that, that the decision afterwards is that you, you require hospital treatment. The other issue that came up last last week, and it, it's, it ties in, I suppose, with the, these hubs as well, it was the issue that Dr Tony Houlihan raised when he became un, unwell and he was talking about the empty accident and emergency departments. Are you finding in your practice, Nick, that people are slow to come forward with other health issues? We are, and uh, I think we spoke about it last week, but I'd be keen to emphasise this again to people, that we want people who are unwell with other things be it an ingrown toenail or be it, you know, chest pain. We want people to come forward. Please don't sit at home self-managing everything. Self-management is appropriate for some things. And indeed, after a phone call with the GP, probably for the ingrown toenail, self-management will be appropriate. But but for more things, you will need uh, maybe a GP assessment. You'll maybe need a prescription from your GP. You maybe will need a hospital referral. And the hospitals are open for COVID and non-COVID related illness. General practice is open as well. We're, we've, we've, as everybody knows by now, we've changed the care pathways and the way we work. And everybody's having a telephone triage first, and every telephone consultation with the option of video consultations and physical examination face to face if it's indicated. So we are open, and we're, we're keenly aware. And I think that some of the evidence from Italy is now coming out that the second 
spike in illness is actually from delayed care from non-COVID related um, uh, illness so it's, so it's important please I, I'd ask people don't uh, be at home presuming that there's no care available there is care available it's available through general practice it's available through the hospital and let us let your general practitioner be the person who decides if this episode of care needs to happen immediately or if it can be delayed or if it can be structured in another way but please don't make those decisions yourself Okay, talk to me Nick about what's happening around private hospitals and people having private health care I listened to uh, Dr Michael O'Keefe Professor uh, Michael O'Keefe who I know deals in in ophthalmology but he was talking about some of his patients he's fearful that some of his patients could go blind or some of them could even die Uh, he was making the point that as of today he's got nowhere to see his patients and he's been told that his patients now must end up on the public list So uh, Yes, there are certainly some some, some genuine concerns around, around this issue, uh, Patricia. And just for the listeners, just to explain to them what has happened is that um, the private hospitals, um, I'm not sure if they all have been, but certainly some of them have been, and the Bansakur Hospital in Cork is an example of one, which has now been made a public hospital. So for the next three months at least, the Bansakur Hospital in Cork will be a public hospital. Now, obviously the consultants in the Bansakur Hospital um were doing an awful uh, lot of hard work and heavy lifting on behalf of the healthcare system as a whole in their private rooms. Uh, And now those patients who didn't require hospital admission but who were attending the rooms for, you know, maybe follow-up of of cancer for prostate disease, follow-up for cancer for breast issues, follow-up, you know, um, for, like, an ophthalmologist who were hoping to see a private ophthalmologist and have their cataracts done. We all know the issues, the bottlenecks to our care there. Absolutely. All of those patients, who, and, and, and this isn't, and I genuinely believe this, this is not in any way um, influenced by, by a desire for the private consultants to protect their income. This is totally based on care, and I, I genuinely believe that, Patricia. Yeah. These patients... If they can no longer go to the consultants' rooms, if they have to come back to the GP and be referred to public health patients, we already know for lots of those, for orthopaedics, for ophthalmology, for neurology, that we're talking two and three year waits, for rheumatology, two and three years waits. And for some of the patients, that's just simply not good enough. For any patient, it's not good enough, let's be honest. But when you've got patients, they take rheumatology, for example, and you've got patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are going to a private consultant maybe three times a year to have their, um, their bloods monitored and their medication reviewed like the general practice we, we shouldn't shoulder that entirely now ourselves we should have still have access to, to specialist opinion specialist care and so we'll have to refer those patients to the public system and we already know the public system has a bottleneck and can't look after them so really it, it's an issue that's there and I hope that there's going to be a common sense um, solution to it uh, the, 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 the issue about the private hospitals no longer being available to patients that is also true, and, 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 and patients might consider that they, that they, that they want to ring their, their, um, their health insurer and just ask what's the level of care that's available to them at the moment through their policy. Yeah, I mean, some people are asking, why are we paying private health yeah. insurance? Yeah, I, 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 I'd encourage people not to make kind of knee-jerk decisions to cancel their, absolutely, their health insurance. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, because if, if, this, if this is a short term thing and by short I would say three to six months like, and, and if, the, if, if the system begins to revert to the, to the previous system after that point well you don't want to be in a position where you've cancelled your policy maybe you've had it for 40 or 50 years you're now 70 years of age or whatever age you, you might be and you're in a risk category where you're 
policy is now going to be more expensive. So I would be very careful uh, and I would encourage people not to make any knee-jerk decisions just to talk to their insurer and, and, and guess, get, get, get the advice. Yeah, there. and we're, we're actually going to have an expert on on um, private health insurance tomorrow on the programme, so we'll hopefully Great. get to answer uh, some people's questions. Uh, face masks. Do we need to be wearing face masks out in public or not? Yeah, so again, this is uh, an issue that, 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 that is evolving quickly. Um, if you look at uh, Asian countries, Patricia, particularly China, Japan, South Korea, that, that have really extensive experience, a lot more experience in European countries and America at dealing with COVID-19 and SARS and, and, and MERS before that, that as well as all their other public health measures, and just very briefly, you know, the personal measures, washing the hands, social distancing, not touching your face, and, and, and the socially restrictive measures, you know, the no mass gatherings, and we're now down to you know, no more than two people in Ireland, all that. So the Asian countries have all that, and they have all that in spades. They also have very strict rules, and we talked about it just a few minutes ago, about enforcing their socially restrictive measures. So, so, so they have all of those things, and they have all of them very well, and they also have very good testing, contact tracing. So so they have they have lots of they have lots of good stuff, but they also have that uh, are, are rely on face masks for all of the central part of their risk redu- reduction strategies uh, in a pub- in public health. And it doesn't replace anything. It doesn't it doesn't make people less enthusiastic for the, for the other measures. But they do use they do use that. And if you look at their curves, their curves are not as steep as ours. And I think face masks for all is an important uh, part of that. Just. To, to see where, where Europe is going, Czech Republic, Slovakia, they're already, Turkey went there before the weekend, Germany are considering it for certain cities where they've got high uh, incidence of COVID-19, and the Centre of Disease Control in the United States on Friday announced a voluntary public health measure where they recommended that, uh, that, that people going out into the public would wear face masks. And this is because social distancing isn't always possible. We know that this... Um, uh, this virus is droplet spread. We know that even through speech and talking to somebody at the counter or passing somebody in the aisle, the droplets can be spread very, very small that you can't see. And this is an effort to limit those spread from the wearer. So what, what, what the, 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 the idea is not that we use medical-grade masks. Medical-grade masks are in short supply and absolutely surgical masks that these respirators are FFP2 masks. They're in such short supply that they need to go to healthcare workers on the front line and within that they need to be prioritised for the high-risk areas like ENT and A&E and ICU. But masks for all so would, would involve uh, cloth homemade masks uh, where the, 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 the intention is that the wearer protects somebody else from themselves so it's so the protection comes from the shielding the mouth of the infected person rather than shielding the mouth of the healthy person and so if, if there's enough people doing that where again it's another risk reduction strategy within the community to stop to help stop the spread of this virus and i know the that's exactly the world health organization they're considering changing their advice on for that very reason it's to stop the people who might have it passing it on to uh, somebody else okay on on testing and how many tests we're carrying out. I mean, I mentioned earlier on, I think we're only doing about 10% of what we had hoped to do. And then there was the story at the back end of last week that didn't get a lot of coverage, the HSE outsourcing tests to a German laboratory. Yeah, I think 2,000 tests went to Germany. I think actually they went by our local flight school here in Cork after the Atlantic Flight Training Academy. I think oh. it was one of their I think, I think it was one of their flights that, that, that brought the, brought them over. There's, if you look at their Twitter account, it's a very interesting tweet that uh, of the lads that they're flying over Europe noticing empty both the skies and the motorways to be empty. But coming back to the testing, so so yeah look I, I think it is a worry that, that we've had to resort to outsourcing testing. 
apologies okay. that, that we've had to out, uh, that we've had to outsource um uh testing we we don't have we haven't had a good experience outsourcing testing with in other aspects referencing the cervical check um issues so i think it is unfortunate we have, that we have to do that but i think the fact of the matter is that this reagent is scarce worldwide and we need the results of these tests back quickly and as quickly as possible so in that regard i don't think you can criticize the outsourcing although it is a worry the t- testing is, go- is going to remain the obstetrician is going to remain a central part to our, our fight against the virus um and, that, and that's for months ahead. So we're we're now in shutdown or lockdown. We're coming. We're in the second week. We've been more or less told we've another two weeks coming. We could have a week or two after that. Who knows? Uh, I certainly wouldn't be sure about what happens at the end of uh, four weeks of shutdown. But even after that, when society begins to open up, if, if you look at Denmark, has started to open up now. Denmark, but slowly. Very slowly, yes. Yeah. So Denmark, yeah. Denmark shut down before they had their first uh, um, death from COVID-19, so they shut down early, and now they're being to open up again. And it is slowly, in, very, in a very targeted way. Um, and up, but equally important with that slow opening up would be the continued emphasis on testing. Like, uh, again, Mike Ryan from the WHO, an Irishman, he said, bring the fight to the vi- virus. You have to identify where the virus is in the yeah. community, and that will be even more important, or as important, when we're reopening uh, after the lockdown, that that we identify new cases, okay. isolate them, and also isolate their contacts. Okay, listen, stay safe, Nick. Nick yeah, we'll talk you. again next week. It's always thanks a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, bye bye. That is uh, Dr. Nick Flynn of mycorkgp.ie.